The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. But let's start in Lesotho because Lesotho's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Lejone Mpochwane, has admitted that his country's poor economy is contributing significantly to acts of illegal mining. But he has also responded to, to uh, Mineral Resources Minister Gwede Mantashe's comments about economic sabotage. We spoke about this uh, earlier this week uh, and last week as well. The fact that Gwede Mantashe has uh, visited that mine near Velkom in the Free State where 31 Basutu nationals were killed, uh, there were high levels of toxic gas, and Gwede Mantashe is saying that this amounts to economic sabotage. I'm going to play you two bits of audio. Firstly, let's have a uh, listen to Gwere Mantashe yesterday at this former Harmony gold mine in Valcom, speaking about the death of more than 30 illegal miners there. There may be people who are still there. And if there are still people there and methane them explode further, there may be additional deaths. So it's an estimate was suspecting we're not giving you a scientific number. We're not going underground. We hope to ultimately get there. But at this point in time, all we're saying is that movements that are shown by the, the movement, by the movement of methane, reflect that there may be some movement underground. Because that shaft is not an easy shaft when you walk in and out. Uh, it's quite a difficult shaft. Uh, and that is where our suspicion comes. That's Gwede Mantashe yesterday visiting that mine near Valcom. As I said, he also made comments about the Lesotho government, uh, pretty harsh comments as well. Lesotho's Minister of Foreign Affairs has now responded. He was speaking to Twilliam Gambi on Newsroom Africa a bit earlier today. Let's have a listen to that. Let me say to you, uh, Lesotho and South Africa are neighbours. And uh, Lesotho uh, is more of a neighbour to South Africa uh, more than anyone else. And as Lesotho, uh, we, 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 are, we are placed right inside South Africa. So as Lesotho, we have this, the, the only neighbor, which is South Africa. Indeed, South Africa has got other neighbors. So for me, as the Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Relations, the relations between Lesotho and South Africa is my highest priority. And indeed, uh, since my appointment as the minister, we have been working uh, closely with the uh, Honorable Minister uh, Naledi Pando, to build and strengthen the relations between our two nations. Yeah. And uh, uh, the issue of the economic sabotage, uh, it is uh, such a strong word uh, to, to use against Lesotho. Uh, because to say something is an economic sabotage, it means it is a formal uh, or a government-led and decided activity. Indeed, uh, there are illegal minings. Yeah. Indeed, there are... Uh, uh, some illegal activities by Basotho living in South Africa. And as the government of Lesotho, we don't support any illegal activity done by Basotho placed anywhere in Lesotho or outside Lesotho. That is the Sutu's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Lejone Mbotwane, speaking on Newsroom Africa a bit earlier on today. EWN's reporter, Oren Singh, is in Lesotho for us, joins us now live. Oren, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much uh, for your time today. Uh, the response from the Lesotho government to Gwede Mantashe's comments saying this isn't an orchestrated government-led campaign to, to back illegal mining. What else have they been saying? 
good afternoon, Mandy. Yes, uh, we sat down with the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Lesotho um, yesterday afternoon at their offices in Meseru, um, that is Minister Lejone Mbojwane, and um, kind of the same sentiments that he, he expressed on Newsroom Africa this morning, that, you know, the, the relationship between Lesotho and South Africa is not strained. There is no issues between the two countries. Um, after the incident did happen, it happened last month around the 18th of May, um, the ministers of mineral resources, Gwede Mantashe, as well as the minister of um, minerals in Lesotho had been chatting about it. And, um, and they had come to some sort of agreement uh, about planning the way forward in, in which they were going to get these miners out. Now, what the minister of foreign affairs told us yesterday is that there isn't 31 nationals. Originally, there were 31 Basutu men believed to have been killed. But three of those bodies were brought up um, shortly after the methane gas explosion happened. And this was done by some of the Zamazamas that were in that mine at the time that survived the, the explosion. And um, so three bodies were brought up. And so the Lesotho government believes there are at least 27 bodies that remain trapped um, beneath the ground. Today, Mandy, we had met with some of the victims of um, the men who are trapped beneath the surface. And they're pleading, they're begging with the South African government and more specifically Minister Mantashe to do something because they seem to think that because there were three people that were brought up by these illegal Zamazamas going underground, they seem to think that they can send more Zamazamas to collect the bodies of these men that are trapped beneath the service. But we know that Minister Mantashi yesterday said that as the South African government, they could not allow that to happen as they would be condoning a criminal activity by sending more Zamazamas down into this unused mine shaft. So you, you, you say that you have spoken with the relatives of those uh, who, who died in this incident. Aside from calling on Gwede Mantashe to, to do more, what else have they been saying about why their relatives were in the country, why they were pursuing illegal mining? I think it's, it's, it's a sentiment that we've, we've heard quite a bit since being in the country, um, arriving yesterday, Mandy, from both um, government as well as some of the residents that live in Lesotho, that, you know, the poor economic climate that uh, the country is faced with um, is, is contributing heavily towards, you know, a number of illegal activities being taken on by their citizens. And one such is that of illegal mining. Um, the, the minister was quite, uh, uh, you know, um, was quite certain of the fact that he, he agrees that there are a large number of Basutu men who go into South Africa and commit illegal mining and undertake um, these illegal activities in the country. But he does say that it is twofold in the sense that there is a market for what they're mining. And he, he says that that market is not in Lesotho. He says South Africa needs to find out who the buyers of this, um, th- these minerals are, be it gold, be it diamonds, or whatever the case is that these Amazamas are underground mining, and arrest those buyers, because he says it's for sure that those buyers are not in Lesotho, but rather in South Africa. And that was sort of the same sentiment that we're hearing from family today, who agreed that, you know, as young, uh, as, like, young people from Lesotho, there are no jobs for them. And they're facing quite a bleak future. And so they're forced into this sort of lifestyle when they see someone coming up in their area and able to build a nice house and take care of his family. And they find out that he's in fact a Zama Zama. They're forced to actually take that route and go down the wrong path. 
Um, but they say that, you know, if South Africa really wants to stem their illegal uh, activities of illegal mining in the country, they need to clamp down on who the buyers are. Oren, thank you very much. Uh, Oren Singh, EWN reporter, speaking to us there from Lesotho, where he's been speaking to the relatives uh, of those men who died in this mine shaft near Valcom. Also been speaking to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Lejoni Mokpuchane, there about uh, Gwedemantashe's comments. Lots of response coming into this already, and Swaki saying on WhatsApp, why is the rescuing of these criminals the responsibility of the South African government? Lesotho government should lay uh, lay down the capital to rescue them, uh, and uh, other reactions as well to the comments uh, from the Lesotho Minister of Foreign Affairs. What do you think about this? Who should be rescuing them? And then as Oren described as well, it is very much because of the economy, the the Lesotho's poor economy, one of the contributing uh, factors to the, the the fact that they are pursuing illegal mining because there are no alternatives. On 702 and Cape Talk, this is the Midday Report with Mandy Wiener, brought to you by Nedbank Commercial Banking. Specialists to enable your business growth aspirations. So I did speak at the start of the show about the fact that the Institute of Risk Management South Africa in its annual risk report has raised red flags about growing social unrest in the country, specifically a rise in protests and riots fueled by social and economic pressures that have been persisted in the country for almost a decade. So what we're seeing today in Dipkloof, very much in line with that, law enforcement keeping a, a watchful eye over protests at the Dipkloof Hostel in Soweto. Protesters uh, were reported to be stoning vehicles yesterday. Uh, Reports also of journalists being attacked. Alpha Ramashwana, EWN reporter, following that first. Alpha, firstly, tell us, what is the current situation in Dipkloof? Well, Mandy, after a day of violent protests and demonstrations at the Deep Sloot Hostel, I can come here and say that uh, the tensions have finally simmered down. Uh, This morning, of course, we did visit the area and there were no signs of any protest. There were no signs that uh, the disgruntled uh, Deep Kloof Hostel residents will take to the streets any time today. However, um, police are obviously there. Police are guarding uh, the area at every entrance uh, to the Deep Sloot Hostel. Deep Kloof, right? Deep Kloof, Deep Kloof, rather, yeah. At every entrance at the Deep Kloof Hostel, there are, you know, police nyalas and JMPD officers there just making sure that uh, things don't, don't get out of control just like they did yesterday. What is the, the concern of residents? What exactly are they um, protesting about? Well, the residents have, li- have listed water, electricity and uh, housing and toilets as some of the issues and things that they don't have in that hostel. They are saying that uh, they get get water at a communal tap, which some people have to travel far to get, and they have to do that every single morning, or else, you know, there's a certain time where the water is closed. So they have to go there every morning to get water. Uh, They don't have access to proper toilets. Looking at the area, Mandy, they do use mobile toilets, which are shared among all the hostel dwellers. So you can only get a sense of uh, how bad the situation there is but let's, let's take a listen to what uh, some of uh, the residents had to say uh, let me just translate it for you mandy he's basically telling us that uh, they don't have water they don't have toilets they don't have electricity and them protesting is just them trying to get what they call their basic human rights <laughs> Because for 
my thanks to Alfred Amashwana, EWN reporter, for bringing us those voices from residents at the Dip Kluif Hostel in Soweto where they were protesting yesterday. Well, let's speak now to Lefan Kala, who is the Dip Kluif Community Forum Deputy Chair. Uh, Lefa, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, what exactly are the concerns? We did hear some of the voices there. There are concerns about running water, about infrastructure, about service delivery. What else is there that, that is of concern? No, currently our main issue is the crime rate that is going up, uh, my sister. You know, we understand the issue of service delivery that contributes to the crime to, to happen. I can just make an example that We've got areas in Dipslut where police cannot even drive in because there are no roads. And during the night, there are no lights, it's very dark, and criminals are taking advantage of the situation. So, yes, the service delivery issues do contribute to the crime rates that is happening in Dipslut. But what we are mm-hmm. facing now is that majority of our people are dying, you know, day in yeah. and day out. People are killed in Dipslot. Mm. So, so Lef, I just want to apologise. Firstly, uh, I was speaking to Alpha about Dip Kluif, and you are the Dip Slurt Community Forum Deputy Chair. The issues are, t- are two very different issues. Uh, for yeah, you, yeah. it is about crime. Last week, we saw this uh, group of residents from Dip Slurt going to the union buildings. You've asked for a meeting with, with the president. Uh, is that the only thing that will suffice for you, or do you believe that, that there, there will be other resolutions to this? No, we have tried. This thing is not new, uh, my sister, because we have been trying to talk with different departments. You'll remember that we are in engagement with two uh, ministers. You can say the Minister of Police and Minister of Home Affairs. They came to Dipslot and try, you know, to solve our issues. But now it seems like it's beyond their ministries. Hence, we approached the office of the, mini- uh, of the president. We are calling for the president to come to Dipslot so that we can have engagement and see what is the best and lasting solution to our challenges. I quoted from a report uh, earlier which made reference uh, the Institute of Risk Management of South Africa and its annual risk report says that we are going to see a rise in protests and riots because of social and economic pressures. Do you feel as the community in Dipstert that this is your only alternative to, to protest? We've got, you know, no any other way to protest because we have tried all, you know, the avenues. We have been writing letters. We have been writing emails. We went to boardrooms, discussed, you know, we, we, you know, all these things that are, po- are humanly possible. We have tried them. We don't like to go on the streets, burning tires and do all those things. But that is the last option that we have so that we can get at least the attention that we want. Because if you are nice, you know, talking to officials, talking to offices, talking to departments, they seems not to take, you know, you serious. This is the last resource, my sister.
Lefa, thank you very much. Uh, Lefa Nkala is the Dipsluit Community Forum Deputy Chair speaking to us there. Uh, and in both of these communities, in both Dipsluit and in Dipkluf in Soweto, we are seeing protests taking place. And, and this is the only alternative for people. If they feel like they're not being heard, then they are going to resort to uh, service delivery protests, uh, to, uh, to, to riots, as we are being warned of. And the only way to resolve this is if you have bold leadership and you address the fundamental problems here. The Midday Report. I mentioned before the headlines that we are going to speak about what is going on in court today. The Moti Group trying to block Amabungani from publishing further articles in its Moti Files se- uh, series. There was that concern around secret litigation that was used. The company successfully applying for urgent court orders against Amabungani. So today, Amabungani is seeking to challenge those gag orders. Uh, so it is accusing the Moti Group of trying to drag us all back into the darkest period of apartheid censorship. Uh, this matter is being argued by Advocate Vincent Maleka SC for the Moti Group today. Judge Sutherland is hearing it. Well, let's speak now to Caroline James, uh, who is the uh, advocacy head coordinator for Amabungani. Caroline, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, take us through the, the argument that is being made by Amabungani. Thanks, Mandy. Um, yes, I think we've, we're making our argument in court today, which is the same as we've been sort of speaking about since we first heard of this, as you say, the secret application. Our argument is that as journalists, we're entitled to obtain information from sources and that we have an ethical obligation to not reveal the identity of those sources. And then we may publish articles in that if they are in the public interest, irrespective of whether that those articles have negative content about individuals. And the Moti group believes that we do not have those rights, that we cannot obtain information from sources if if that source has potentially got the information illegally and we are not allowed to publish articles that are defamatory of them based on documents that were obtained illegally and that belong to them. The Moti Group wanted to bring a counter-application. Judge Sutherland did not uh, want to allow that, saying it was irregular and uh, actually quite a cheek. What was that about? Yes, so later on, after we'd filed the case before Judge Sutherland, as you say, the Moti Group tried to bring an application in which they they proposed additional relief that they sought. Um, But our argument always was that irrespective of the merits of their counter application it was just not regular it, you know it didn't follow court process to do that and i think that's that's what judge sutherland recognized as well it, you know didn't didn't go into the actual content of that application but just said that they were not entitled to bring that application in the way that they did uh, Caroline, what is at stake today? Because Amabungani has said that this is very much an affront to media freedom uh, that it's an attempt to silence whistleblowers what what do you believe is at stake today I think, as I mentioned, it is a fundamental principle of journalism that we that journalists can retain the confidentiality of their sources, and that is what enables investigative journalism. Many individuals are not comfortable because of threats to their safety to to report publicly on what they know, and so that they they rely on that confidentiality that journalists can offer them. And if the Morty Group is successful in their application today. It will allow companies to force journalists to return documents that they have received from whistleblowers, which would then 
identify the the individual who has leaked that that document. So the the case is very sort of problematic for for whistleblowers in this case necessarily, but also possible whistleblowers in the future if they know that their confidentiality isn't protected. And I think another threat to journalism is this idea that journalists can't report on on documents that belong to a company. The Morty Group says that the documents that Ama Bongani has access to include confidential company documents and that because they own the documents, we do not have a right to access them, which obviously means that Companies who are who have potential dodgy dealings will be able to use that argument in the future, which would completely shut down the opportunity for journalists to identify fraud and corruption in the public and private sector. Caroline, thank you very much. Uh, Caroline James is speaking to us there, the advocacy head for uh, advocacy coordinator for Amabungane. That matter is currently before Judge Sutherland at the moment. It is being argued uh, by Amabungane. There are also various amici, friends of the court, that are also participating today because the issue here very much around media freedom. The midday report. So following on from the heavy rainfall in the Western Cape, we saw the levels of dams across the province rising. The Department of Water and Sanitation today holding a media tour to the Berg River Dam near Franschhoek, having a look at the water situation in the Western Cape. We know this comes off the back of years of of drought and uh, dam levels being so low. And now that we've had significant rain, how has that impacted on dam levels? Also, how has it impacted uh, on infrastructure? Kevin Brunt, EWN reporter joining us now. Uh, Kevin, tell us uh, what you've seen at uh, the Berg River Dam. A very good afternoon to you, Mandy. Well, we've just arrived here on the dam. Earlier on, we had a briefing from the officials from the Department of Water and Sanitation at the office further down below. We've now made our way up to the actual catchment dam, and it's quite impressive to see the technology being deployed here also with regard to safety and ensuring that the area areas in particular being kept safe with regard to heavy rainfall. A lot of questions also coming from the media in terms of what can officials or the department then do? We're only now basically at the end of June. As expected, there is that there are still two good months of heavy rain lying ahead for the Western Cape. Word from the officials here is that the Western Cape dams is now at a collective 85% compared to 56.8% during the same time last year. They've also given updates with regard to individual dams. The Berg River Dam, as you correctly said, just outside French Hook here in the Cape Winelands, that is more than 100% full. But they give they gave us the assurance, Mandy, that when it comes to the safety, some of these dams also have a purpose besides being a catchment area or uh, reserves for household use. It's also then to control the flow of water within this area, and that's why there are various mechanisms in place here to ensure the residents are being kept safe. But just listen to what Ntombi Zanele uh, Mupariwa from the Department of Water and Sanitation here in the Western Cape had to say. In terms of our emergency preparedness that uh, the department has I think we're just having some uh, issue there with that audio. In all oh, there events, we, go. we inform all the water users, stay away from the floodplain, and also inform the municipalities in their jurisdiction so that they can pursue other, other means of making sure that um, the, 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 the consumers are moved. 
Thank you to Kevin Brunt, EWN reporter, for uh, giving us uh, that update there as they are taking on a media tour of the Berg River Dam by the Department of Water and Sanitation, having a look at dam levels and impacts on the infrastructure following the flooding. The Midday Report. Well, if you've been following what uh, what was developing in Russia over the weekend, you will now know a little bit more about the Wagner Group and Wagner Mercenaries and also about uh, the individual Yevgeny Prigozhin and who he is, the former caterer, hot dog seller, who now is the head of the Wagner Group. Well, a new report out is telling us, uh, it's called Architects of Terror, the Wagner Group's blueprint for state capture in the Central African Republic. And it's giving us a lot more detail about the widespread atrocities that were committed by these mercenaries, including murder, rape, torture against civilians in the Central African Republic. Well, let's speak to Peter Fabricius now, who's a Daily Maverick a journalist and uh, an expert on foreign policy. Peter, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. What do we know about the Wagner Group and what they've been doing in the Central African Republic? Yeah, we've known for a long time, Mandy, Mandy that the um, it was you know it was they were committing atrocities and so on uh, in in that area. It was, seemed to be their first sort of uh, intervention in Africa. But this new report by the Century goes into a lot more detail. It's spoken to a lot of um, people, you know, including ex-military. I think some contemporary military uh, officers um, and and others. Militia men and so on, and uh, yeah, it paints a really pretty devastating picture of just how they operate. You know, they seem to have this policy of cleansing and sweeping, as they call it. You know, they just sort of basically wipe out everything in their path. You know, according to this report, when they want to take over an area, wipe out opposition villages because that, that particular ethnic group tends to support the opposition, and wipe out mining camps because they that's their that's their kind of way of getting their you know, the quid pro quo, I think. And what kind of cooperation do we see between the Wagner Group and Prigozhin and the government of the day? Because it does seem as though yeah. they're, they're really using this to eliminate opponents of the current president. Yeah, you know, these, the, the, the report's quite interesting in that regard because it said there is a, a, a prevailing view that um, that the president, uh, Twadera, is, is simply a, a puppet of the Wagner Group that he's been, you know, he's also been captured. But in fact, they think not. They think that he is quite cynically using the group and uh, and, and against everybody else, you know, that he still makes the ultimate decisions. That, that was what their informants told them. And Peter, developments in Russia over the past few days uh, and what is happening around Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, do you expect that to have any impact on his, uh, his activities or the Wagner Group's activities yeah. in Africa? Yeah, that is a big question, actually. There's a lot of speculation about that in media and, you know, social media and so on. Um, because there's some reports that suggested that Wagner was going to be dissolved as part of this deal. But it's now beginning to look less clear. It might be that, um, you know, the deal that, 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 that Putin offered, uh, Prigozhin was that, uh, you know, the, the Wagner group should either join, the soldiers should actually join the army. Um, or they should leave, you know, leave, uh, leave Russia, go to Belarus. So it might be that Wagner manages somehow to continue operating. Uh, you know, Prigozhin continues to operate the, the whole Wagner uh, from Belarus, conceivably. Mm. 
Peter, thank you very much. Uh, Peter Fabricius speaking to us, the Daily Maverick journalist, uh, foreign policy expert as well, about this new report out, uh, which does tell us about uh, what is being done by the Wagner Group. It's called Architects of, Architects of Terror, the Wagner Group's blueprint for state capture in the Central African Republic. The Midday Report. Jobs numbers out today from Statistics South Africa. South Africa shedding 97,000 jobs in the last year. That's uh, from the, the 12 months from March to March. So that means that there are now less than 10 million people with uh, jobs in the country. The quarterly employment statistics survey released by StatsSA today looking at uh, total employment. Just 10 million South Africans are employed. Astonishing that. Well, let's speak now to Matlapani Masupi who's the Employment Statistics Director at StatsSA. Matlapane, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, take us through uh, some of the findings from the quarterly Employment Statistics Survey. Afternoon, Serena, and thank you so much for the interview. The, uh, the survey for that is the QES quarterly Employment Statistics Survey for quarter one 2023 showed that 9,970,000 people were employed. This is a quarterly decrease of 21,000 from 9,991,000 in quarter four of 2022. And when you look at the year on year comparison, as you've indicated, it's a drop of 97,000. And when we look at the, the sum of the content of the survey, we, which measures full-time and part-time, uh, full-time we are referring to those working 40 hours or more per week, while part-time, on the other hand, are those working less than 40 hours. The results are as follows. We're going to break down that 9,970,000 mm. into full-time and part-time. Uh, full-time gave us 8,818,000, while part-time uh, registered 1,152,000. And we look at the movement uh, quarter in year on year movement of both uh, part-time and full-time, starting with full-time. The results show that full-time uh, quarter on quarter dropped by 63,000, and also year on year, it registered a drop of 24,000. While part-time, on the other hand, showed an increase of 42,000 quarter-on-quarter, but year on year, a drop of 23,000. And zooming into the industries contributing to this drop, we have indicated that uh, it's a drop of 21,000. We are starting with the first one is trade and a decrease of 36,000 followed by business services, 32,000. Transport and construction both showed a drop of 2,000 each. However, there are industries which give us a, some good news. I may say it, community services, an increase of 41,000, mining, 5,000, manufacturing, 4,000, and electricity, 1,000. Let me zoom into these community services, which showed the highest uh, increase of 41,000. It's an industry which consists mostly of your national department, provincial, municipalities, universities and technicon, and lastly, your extra-budgetary. Mm. Extra-budgetaries are your government museum, uh, uh, government resorts, uh, libraries, your IEC, they fall under extra-budgetary. Right. Uh, but that e- increase of 41,000 is coming from uh, provincial departments because we are currently... Uh, or the government is currently running a presidential youth uh, employment initi- initiative okay. 
project. So the bulk of uh, uh, this is coming from uh, um, youth who are employed, who are employed mm. to help in uh, uh, education activities. Matlepane, thank you so much. Uh, Matlepane Masupia, Employment Statistics Director at Stats SA. So uh, what we're seeing across the board is a decline in jobs, but in government there, there is job creation because there's a youth employment thing. I think Paniazala Sufi may be driving some of that uh, as well. But overall, less than 10 million people are employed in South Africa in a country where we have 60 million people. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.